0: Well, good evening to you all. Good to see you. Welcome to worship at City Reformed Presbyterian Church. You've already been welcomed by Pastor Nauman, but I'll extend my own welcome to you. If you don't know me, my name's uh, Jim Partridge. I'm one of the leaders here, and I'm very glad to be here with you all this evening. Um, I will be following an outline that hopefully you had in your bulletin. Perhaps the, one of the best pieces of news that I could give you tonight is that you will not be hearing another sermon on sex. Yay. Dave Snoke handled uh, that in the last two weeks, and uh, I won't be preaching on that tonight. However, I will open with a story that actually fits our larger context of the Corinthians, Uh, I remember actually a couple weeks ago, Pastor Joseph uh, spoke and he mentioned there was actually a Greek term that was coined during the early centuries in the Greco-Roman world, Corinthianize, and it had to do with loose living, people who uh, lived loosely in their sexuality. And uh, this story might relate to that a little bit and to the text that we'll be reading in just a little bit. Like to tell you a little story. I'm going to call this story, the story of Jim and Merle, and the Tampa Topless Nightclub. It's the summer of 1992, and there was a 35-year-old male physical therapist who happened to be with a new company. He was married nine years with four small children. He was invited. Uh, to join with the other male owners, PTs, of that company for an all-expense-paid trip getaway to Tampa, Florida. Now, this uh, young PT had a reputation already, uh, perhaps as a Christian or at least a moralist. Uh, He was actually known as the Boy Scout and uh, actually wore his Boy Scout uniform to the uh, airport just as a joke. Well, if you haven't figured it out already, I'm Jim in the story. And I tell this story with a little bit of fear and trepidation because, um, full disclosure, uh, one of your elders actually did spend some time in a Tampa Tampa topless nightclub. About five minutes. Thank the Lord. <laughs> story is true. Um, we flew to Tampa together. Um, about six PTs, and um, my thought was that we were going to be going to the hotel, but no. We arrived late enough that we uh, drove straight to, and we were all hungry, of course, so we drove not to the hotel, but to a nightclub, and I was totally clueless until I walked in the door and saw I was in a place that was so awkward, (laughs) so awkward. A place that I did not expect to be and a place that my fellow PTs had totally like zipped their lips about where we were going. So I was had and um, I left after about five minutes of awkwardness. Where was I going to go? Well, um, we had gone there via cab with Merle, Merle was the cab driver. So Merle and I spent the next three or four hours hanging out in his cab while my buddies had their time in the nightclub. That's the story of Jim and Merle and the Tampa Topless nightclub. Hope you enjoy that. I have just a couple questions uh, that came to mind in regards to what we're going to read here in a moment. What if I, as a perhaps a known Christian, what if I'd stayed at the club, uh, perhaps in my freedom in, uh, in Christ? Um, what if Merle, the cab driver, were, was a young Christian from a non-Christian family with little experience in the faith and knew that I was staying at the club, or I think we invited Merle to be with us too, and he chose not to, I think he'd been with them before and decided, I don't need to spend that time with them. Uh, And then finally, how do biblical principles help us live as faithful disciples in an increasingly pagan world? Um, As I said, you're not going to hear a sermon on sex tonight because the text doesn't really talk about that, but the Corinthian world was full of it and um, full of paganism, and we're going to find that out as we read our text. If you would turn in your uh, bulletins to page 5. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 8, all of 1 Corinthians uh, 8. We're beginning a a new section in our study of 1 Corinthians, uh, in which we're going to be talking about uh, how we live as Christians uh, in the freedom that we have in Christ, though that freedom is constrained by biblical love. Um, I put down as my thesis tonight biblical love trumps Christian liberty in matters of conscience and Christian living. Let's read the text. We'll affirm it as the word of the Lord. I'll pray, and then we'll move on from there. Apostle Paul says this, Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we are no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this word of the apostle. We thank you for the care that he took to instruct a young church that was in the middle of just an incredibly um, pagan world. Lord, we find ourselves in the midst of an increasingly pagan world, it seems, and we need this biblical wisdom to walk faithfully. Would you help myself, Father, to preach this word clearly? Would you help my brothers and sisters here to have ears to hear? Would your spirit within all of us that no Christ would that Spirit give us insight and help us to apply, Lord, what we read and what we hear tonight. Forgive my sins, Father. Use this word for your purpose, we pray together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, what I'd like to do is um, see in your outline here. Let's work through the text, give a little bit of historical context. In verses 1 through 3, Paul is introducing a new subject. He's done this several times in the book of 1 Corinthians. This letter was written in response to various problems in the church that were brought to Paul. Now concerning food offered to idols. Now, this topic really sounds obscure, right, to modern ears, but it was actually a really big deal in first century Greco-Roman world and for the early Christians. In your New Testament, there's other texts, significant texts, that reference this problem, such as Romans 14. We read a little bit of that in the call to confession, and it's in your additional scripture. Romans 14 is really kind of a parallel text to Romans, or to 1 Corinthians 8. If you read the two together, you'll really kind of get how, much, how big a deal this was for Paul to speak to. The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 ended uh, with a determination by the elders that included an exhortation about this subject. And you'll get this again, Paul's going to return to this topic in 1 Corinthians 10. I'm not sure who's preaching that, but have fun. Um, Corinth was a bustling, prosperous port city that connected the Greek mainland with the Peloponnesian Peninsula. That's a mouthful. Uh, It was a crossroads of many religions and cultures, and as a result, it had many pagan temples where food was routinely offered in sacrifice to the various gods, the chief one being Aphrodite, That was the Greek goddess of, guess what, sex. Uh, The temple for Aphrodite was on a mountain that overlooked the city on the coast. And historians tell us that that was home to perhaps a thousand female cult prostitutes. So Corinth was like a modern day Las Vegas. I told you you're not going to hear a sermon on sex, but you can't get away from it in Corinth or in America today. So that's it. The meat from the animal sacrifices was portioned out for the idol or the god, some for them, the priest, and the one offering the sacrifice. However, there were leftovers, right? The leftovers were taken to the public meat market to be sold. So the ribeye steaks that you just bought might have been left over from the previous day's offering and worship of Aphrodite. For Christians... That caused questions. Lots of questions. I'll just name two. Was this meat that I'm eating spiritually contaminated by the idols or gods that it was sacrificed to? Can I participate in the temple potluck supper? Because these temples had banquet halls and they would have, you know, various suppers. These were practical issues for early Christians in Corinth. Well, then Paul actually, in these first three verses you'll look at, he addresses the Corinthians' attitude toward this problem. In the latter part of verse 1, their attitude in a word was arrogant. We know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge. This, quote, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So what's with the quotes? The translators of the text have put these quotation marks in uh, as kind of likely claims of the Corinthians. These were things that the Corinthians might have been saying. Hey, we've got knowledge. We're free. We're smart people, smart Christians. They were in the know, as we might say, on this issue. They saw themselves free as Christians to eat anything, anytime, anywhere. And yet Paul in verses 2 to 3 calls them out for their spiritual pride as contrasted with a humble knowledge or freedom, controlled by what? By love for God and neighbor. The reformer John Calvin loved these verses. He wished his hearers would memorize them. He said this, The foundation of true knowledge is personal knowledge of God, which makes us humble and obedient, and far from putting us on a pedestal, it wholly abases us. But where there is pride, there is no knowledge of God. Well, after rebuking their arrogance in verses 1 to 3, Paul then actually agrees with the Corinthians regarding their knowledge about food offered to idols in verses 4 through 6. But his teaching goes further. Yes, he's agreeing with the Corinthians. Idols have no real existence. And yes, there is no God but one. This is not only Paul speaking. This is Old Testament truth, the prophet Isaiah forcefully spoke these truths about God's nature and about... Um, sorry, I lost my thought here. Um, yeah, idolatry, the knowledge of God, his nature. But then Paul roots his teaching about idolatry in the doctrine of God in verse six by stating, A New Testament recapitulation of the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4. I thought I'd put that in the liturgy, but I hadn't. But you've heard this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Can you hear that in verse 6? It's a New Testament version of the Shema. Shema. Verse 6, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is really Paul's brilliant confessional response to the surrounding pagan Greco Roman culture that was swirling around the Corinthians. They had their pantheon of the gods, right? Many of them, gods and idols. And this response roots Christian faith and practice where? Squarely in the doctrines of creation and redemption. This teaching removes really all the error and superstition contained in the issue of food offered in sacrifice to idols. And it really provides the basis for our Christian freedom and our liberty. And yet, there's a couple more verses in this chapter, right? Paul wisely in verses 7 through 13 goes on to articulate this knowledge and freedom for mature Christians must be tempered by love and care in its application. Which he had challenged them before back in verse three, two 2 and 3. Look at verse 7. Not all possess this knowledge. He's saying that there are those Christians whose faith is not yet mature. Their consciences are tender. They might be, perhaps in our view, a little bit legalistic. They might have scruples about certain things that lead to concern. The passages that we had from Romans 14, back in our confession of faith, they flesh out these ethical problems in more detail. The question might be, how do we handle Issues of conscience in the Christian life. Well, Paul's very clear, both in this text, 1 Corinthians 8, and in Romans 14, that stumbling blocks to faith should be avoided and that love for our brethren must be the priority. Consider Romans 14, 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And then regarding living by faith, which we're all called to do, Paul says this in the end of Romans 14, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's a huge statement by Paul in uh, Romans 14. Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 8. Look at verse 8. Paul confirms his teaching that he earlier had in the passage that what we eat is a matter of indifference, There's no moral issue in what we eat that makes us better or worse Christians. The moral issues in living out our Christian life arise from how we use our freedom in Christ. Let me ask myself, and let me ask you, brothers and sisters, will we selfishly disregard the convictions and the consciences of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Or will we in love honor them and in essence, limit our freedom? It's a searching question, but I think that's what this passage is getting at. Well, let me at this point pause to give a couple of practical examples to try and apply what I've taught thus far. I'm going to give you two examples. The first is from my history, uh, my wife and I, actually in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, where I was a member for 20 years before I came into the PCA. If you know anything about the RP Church, this church has a conviction of singing the Psalms exclusively and a cappella in corporate worship. Well, this conviction was an issue when this church gathered for worship with other congregations from Pittsburgh in a joint Reformation Day service. Would the joint service accommodate this conviction or would it be ignored in the name of Christian liberty? Well, I'm pleased to say that the issue among the Reformed churches in the eastern suburbs of Pittsburgh, at least, was to, in love, honor their RP brothers for their conviction. And during that service, they sang the psalms exclusively in a cappella in those services. It's a little bit weird because a lot of people don't sing that way, but it it was good. I thought that was a great example of church unity and a great application of these issues of Christian liberty found in our text in Romans 14. More recently and more close to home for us at City Reformed was our response to the coronavirus pandemic. We as elders, as leadership sought to apply the principles found in these chapters of scripture. Now one could argue that a key issue involved in the response, seeking to limit the spread of the virus, was not a matter of indifference, but instead an issue with significant consequences on a number of fronts. I'll grant that. Seeking to weigh the competing interests of maintaining the physical gathering of the saints in accord with the book of Hebrews, where we're told to not neglect meeting together, Balancing that with a desire to also do this safely and conscientiously as good citizens who respect the law and advice of the state and local and federal officials, this was, friends, difficult. And it required numerous, ridiculously numerous, hard decisions. We spent a lot of time talking about how we would faithfully respond to this pandemic. Well, I'm here to say by God's incredible grace, we at Leadership and uh, City Reform felt a strong and unified commitment to having our love for God and our neighbors to be the key driver and priority in our decision-making process, as opposed to the biblical teachings on Christian liberty. In other words, we felt that the priority of biblical love trumped the principle of Christian liberty when it came to our pandemic response. And by and large, we received overwhelming positive regard and support for this approach. Although, truth be told, a few families left our church because they felt we didn't handle the pandemic properly. Mandated masking was a way that we felt we could limit our freedom for the sake of a higher good of love of neighbor. And it should be noted that an unknown but perhaps sizable number of our members and adherents held to this policy despite perhaps lacking the conviction that it was a necessary mitigation measure to limit the spread of COVID. They, in essence, limited their freedom for the sake of love. One of those members actually expressed to me that although he felt our pandemic response was overly cautious, this member trusted our leadership and felt that mandated masking was really the right thing to do. This testimony, of course, was an encouragement to me as an elder, and I think it actually expresses the the spirit of this passage. Well, let me just return to our text offer a few more observations that hopefully will bring home the priority of biblical love in Christian living and help prepare us to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, Paul actually sketches out a scene for the Corinthians that may remind you of my story from Tampa. The scene is a pagan festival, a banquet held in one of the many temples to the gods in Corinth in which... We surmise a Christian whose conscience was free to participate does so in the presence of a Christian whose conscience was not free to do so, whose conscience was, as Paul might say here, weak. The former believer's participation, the strong Christian, leads the latter believer to participate in something that goes against his conscience to do something they felt was not right to do, to not act out of faith. As Paul said, remember in the end of Romans 14, whatever does not proceed from faith is what? Is sin. So this latter believer is in essence led into sin by the stronger believer. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 does not take this lightly. It's not just a matter of poor judgment. It's a matter of sinning against a fellow Christian, which by their union with Jesus means a sin against him. Would you look with me at the last three verses and look at the progression of thought and the repetition of emphasis in Paul's words in these last three verses. Verse 11, he speaks of the action of the free or strong Christian as destroying the weak Christian who is described in the third person as who? The brother for whom Christ died. And then in verse 12, Paul describes this action in the plural, clearly as sinning against your brothers and sisters, the Greek says, which indicates a wider effect. Perhaps this was a real corporate sin in Corinth. In either case, the sin against one or more fellow believers also constitutes a sin against Christ, again by virtue of a believer's union with him. Paul takes this connection so seriously that he makes it personal in verse 13 when he twice uses the term my brother and he pledges to guard and protect their faith. Brothers and sisters, this passage speaks of the priority of biblical love in our lives lived day by day before the face of God and in Christ over and against the priority of our Christian liberty, which our Savior purchased for his people at great cost at the cross. The cross. That old, rugged cross on which Jesus died for sinners like you and like me that made us at the same time both the most free people in the world, and yet the most constrained of all people in the world, free from guilt and power of sin that enslaves us, and yet constrained to live and to love as a servant of the one who died for those who trust in his work on their behalf. I'm going to invite Pastor Nauman in a moment to now further explain these things as he leads us to the table that depicts for us the future greatest banquet of them all, the marriage feast of the Lamb. Pastor Nauman, would you please come?